Please join me in the Old Testament reading, which is Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The New Testament reading is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. If you will turn in your Bibles with me to Romans 1, 16 and 17. In your pew Bibles, it's page 939, if you're not there already. Semantic cessation. Semantic cessation is a psychological phenomenon in which a repeated word or phrase loses its meaning when it's repeated over and over and over again. Semantic cessation. Hopefully, hopefully you've experienced this and I'm not going out on a limb. It's when you say a word so many times so quickly, the word no longer makes sense. If you take one word, don't do this now, LJ. When you take a word like money, and say money over and over and over again for 60 seconds. After 60 seconds, your brain will have a hard time processing the meaning of that word. It will be hard to use it in a sentence after 60 seconds. The word will no longer have its meaning, meaning you will, no lo you will have difficulty trying to use it and you probably won't even be able to pronounce it correctly anymore. After 60 seconds, you are all doing it in your head right now. I know it. But I told you not to. This phenomenon is known as semantic cessation. It was written in a dissertation by Dr. Leon James. And as we come to our passage this morning, I don't want us to, to succumb to this phenomenon. Because in this passage, it will be easy for us to look at the word gospel and lose our understanding of its meaning. The gospel is used four times just in these first 17 chapters in Romans. This word gospel can literally be translated as good news. It's used 135 times in the New Testament. We see it as early as Matthew 4, 
where Jesus went through Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Mark also uses it. Luke translates translates it in chapter 2 as the good news of great joy, the gospel of Jesus. This word can also be translated as preaching, the act of proclaiming the gospel as it is in Acts 5. Out of the 135 times it is used in the New Testament, 81 of them are used in Paul's writings. Paul is a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, is what Romans 1.1 reads. He speaks much of the gospel in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Colossians, in Philippians, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, in Titus, in Philemon. He speaks much of the gospel. And I give you this systematic and semantic description of this word because no matter how many times John or I say the gospel, I never want us to lose our sight of its meaning. It is the good news of Jesus. We are going to talk a lot about the gospel, but it must make sense to us for us to understand it. And by the power of God, he will change our hearts and our lives. But before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning as a people who are in need. We are hurting because this world has fallen. Because people are broken in their sin. And we no longer do what is best for others, but we tend to only do what's best for ourselves, no matter what that causes to others. Lord, this world has fallen, and we see this in our everyday lives, such as our sight. I pray for Dr. Lynch and Claire Reddit. Lord, heal their eyes. Lord, we see that this world is broken because we are sick and debilitated. Lord, I pray for Mr. Billy and Mr. Jim and Mr. Tom and Shushu and for April Jeffries. Lord, we see that this world is broken through death. I pray for Bill and Gail Moore and David and Carol Ann Whittington. Lord, in our families, we deal with sickness, death, disease, mental illness, strained relationships, strained marriages, broken marriages. We have students dealing with anxiety and depression and peer pressure. Lord, may we all rest in the finished work of Christ 
and know that our identity is sealed in him through faith. Lord, we pray for our sister church, River Oaks Reformed Presbyterian Church in Germantown. Please bless James Grant, the new interim pastor there. Lord, use him to proclaim the gospel in Germantown. Lord, I lift up my brother, Doug Barcroft, pastor at Hickory with here in Fayette County with us. Lord, use him to preach the gospel. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this, in this county. There's hardly a road that we can travel down without seeing a church. Lord, may you move in power through the preaching of the gospel. Lord, we pray for the church planting network in the Mid-South, for Clint Wilkie and his work, for Hunter Brewer, who's planting a church in Collierville, for David Anderson, who's planting a church in Little Rock. Lord, we pray for our senators and our representatives. We pray for their leadership. May they be just and honest in what they do. May their decisions come from the biblical word and the authority that you have given us. Lord, we pray for our president. May he stand for truth. May he stand for the widow and the orphan. May he be gracious and kind and just and merciful. For that is who you are. Lord, we pray for our missionaries that our church supports. We pray for Mark and Liz Scheibe and their work in Belfast. We pray for Alan Cochet and his work in France. We pray for Judy Jacobson and her work in China. We pray for Jeff and Katie Saunders and their work in Japan. Lord, may their work and their ministry be founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, come quickly and in glory. Amen. Many of us come to the book of Romans and have often viewed it as our textbook of doctrine. And although it is theological, my argument this morning will be that it is not a books, a textbook of theology, but it is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the saints in Rome. The churches, and this is not a singular church, for as we see in Romans 1.1 or Romans 1.7, this letter is written to those loved and called to be saints by God. One of the problems and one of the tensions that this book and this letter is addressing is that the Roman church had been established by Jews, probably after Pentecost in Acts 2.10. But in, AD, in 49 A.D., Claudius kicked out all the Jews of Rome. And so you have this church established by Jews 
who were preaching the gospel and bringing Gentiles into the church because Jesus Christ is being preached. And then you have the Jews being kicked out, leaving the Gentiles by themselves to start leading and developing this church. And then as Jews are coming back into Rome, there's this conflict. Jews lived a separate life from Gentiles. But you have these two people called to be united under the headship of Christ, and they don't know what to do. And Paul calls them to unity. Paul calls them and tells them that the gospel that they preach is a gospel that unites. It doesn't divide. All of the saints in Rome are under the headship of Christ. Even though the Jews in history past have been promised the covenants through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Gentiles are coming into those promises of God, they are all united to Christ. Paul is also helping the Romans see how if God's plan is somehow divided, they will never understand why he's being called to the mission field in Spain. For this is where the book ends. From beginning to end, this book is about the people of God uniting under the gospel because the gospel changes people's lives. And this is the ministry of Paul, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. God is calling to himself a new people, no longer united under Adam, but united to Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. And as we come to our text in verses 1, 16 to 17, sorry, chapter 1, 16 to 17, I want us to look at three very important aspects of the gospel. First, And very extensively, we are going to look at Paul's apostolic authority. Second, we're going to look at Paul's apostolic message. And third, we're going to look at Paul's apostolic application of that message. So first, Paul's apostolic authority. As we're here in verses 16 to 17, Paul has already given a greeting to the church. To the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. This is how he begins the letter. Turn with uh, look at verses just one, uh, one through six. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son. He, or who Jesus was, descended from David according to the flesh. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul has placed the gospel of Jesus as revealed in history at the forefront of the minds of all that are in Rome. The gospel is not a new plan of God's salvation. 
The gospel is the plan of God's redemption, which he promised beforehand. Paul speaks about this elsewhere in Galatians 3 and Ephesians 2. In Galatians 3, he says, And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And not only does Paul place the gospel in history, but God also places but Paul also places the gospel through the power of the triune God. The gospel of God is the gospel of the Son of God, who by the power of the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. This is the gospel. The good news is that God the Father raised God the Son through the power of God the Holy Spirit to accomplish redemption for his people. This happened in history. And this happened on our behalf. And this happened because God is gracious and merciful. By grace we have been called. By grace we have been saved by the Holy Trinity. The kingdom is at hand. Jesus is risen. Paul is an apostle of this message, entrusted with the good news. And this means that he has a very special place in history. Apostles with a capital A were men specifically called by Jesus, sent out to preach the gospel after the resurrection. The original 12 apostles we see in in Luke 6 were Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, and Simon, and Judas, and another Judas who became a traitor. In Acts 1, we see the 11, because Judas Iscariot is no longer there, we see the 11 trying to choose a new apostle. And in Acts 1, 15 through 22, this is what Peter says. Brothers, the scripture had been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit beforehand, sound familiar? The Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among and was allotted in his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bouts gushed out. And then listen to what Peter says about the qualifications of an apostle. As they're about to choose someone to replace Judas Iscariot. So one of the men who have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. First qualification. Being there from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up, one of these men must be a witness of his resurrection. An apostle with a capital A is someone who has borne witness to the life, the ministry, and the resurrection of Jesus. They were given a very special task 
to take this gospel message and to proclaim the good news. You can read this later, but Acts 1 through 6, the apostles very often are called the Twelve. And they were appointed to a special task. And the people devoted themselves to the apostles, to their teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. The only apostle that doesn't fit the description is the author of this book, Paul. And we see in Acts 9, Paul, who is known as Saul at the point, has just witnessed the stoning of Stephen. And in verse 9, 11, we read this. Rise and go to the street called Straight. So Jesus is sending a disciple, not an apostle, named Ananias, to seek out Saul. And in verse 11, he says, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, a different Judas, Look for the man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, and a, a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority of the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So Ananias went and Ananias laid hands on him. And Paul gained his sight. And Paul was baptized in the name of the Lord. If you want more on the history of Paul's conversion Read Galatians 1 through 2. So an apostle is someone who, according to Acts 1 and Acts 9, is someone who is called out by God for a very special mission. He's giving very specific instruments to carry and handle the word of God by proclaiming the gospel to all people. The apostles are very broad in vocus, but very narrow in office. I am not an apostle. This might shock you, but John is not an apostle. Even though we have been called to be ordained in the ministry of God's word, in the administration of the sacraments, we are not apostles. We have had not had visions of the crucified Christ We did not see the life and witness the resurrection. This is a very specific office. And when we speak, John and I, we speak with the Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, guiding us to expound what he has already given us in his word. God has spoken to his people and revealed himself in the scriptures. Now, you might ask, why am I making this point. I'm making it because as we come to Paul's letters, and as we will come back as we're doing this series of seeing Christ through all Scripture, we're going to go through all of Paul's letters, and I think it's imperative for us to see the authority given to Paul as an apostle. 
Every New Testament book was written either by an apostle or someone closely associated with one of the twelve. Mark was a disciple of Peter, so the Gospel of Mark could very easily be called the Gospel of Peter. Luke was a disciple of Paul, so the Gospel of Luke could very easily be called the Gospel according to Paul. Why make such a big deal? Well, I'm doing this for a couple reasons. I think it's important for us to understand that the New Testament we hold is a firm foundation written through the authority of the Holy Spirit as the Word of God. The New Testament writings can be trusted because God, the Holy Spirit, has worked through these authors and revealed to us what is needed for salvation. We can be assured of its trustworthiness because God is faithful. We stand upon this word because it's the infallible and inerrant word of God. Because God appointed those to write it. Second, in some personal application, I think sometimes we can take this special authority given to the apostles too lightly. And this is what I mean. Um, have you ever said the phrase, God has told me blank? Or have you ever said, God has revealed to me fill in the blank? Now I want to be careful. And I don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God does not speak to his people. He does. Through his written word and through the preaching of the gospel, God reveals himself in power. We're going to get to this point in a minute. God does speak because God is alive and well. Jesus has resurrected from the dead and he sits on his throne as in glory. Yet, when you or even I say such words as God has told me or God has revealed to me, we must be very careful we, were, we are not adding something to God's word. Because God has not set us apart to do so. We cannot add to God's word. It is closed. If God tells us something or God reveals us something by the Holy Spirit, it must coincide. It must agree with what is written in this book. If it does not agree, it is not from God. And I say this not to discourage us as people. For we must listen for God's voice in our lives. We're disciples of Jesus. God does speak to us. God does move. But why I want to be so nuanced about our understanding is that because he has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus appointed 12 instruments to proclaim his gospel. And if we believe that God is telling us is verifiable by scripture, God is speaking to us. But if it is not, we must beware. I often tell our youth group, if anyone ever comes to you and says something like, I found something out new about the gospel. It ain't the gospel because the gospel's not new. It's thousands of years old. <laughs> 
But I think sometimes we can use our words flippantly. Sometimes we use God told me as a trump card to show holiness. Or we use God revealed to me because what is someone going to say when I say God has revealed something to me? You can't say no to that. But we must be cautious with our words. We must be a people who are okay with just saying, I think this is the best decision for my life. I think with what I've read in Scripture and trying to apply that to my life, I think this is the best decision I can make at this point. Because we've all heard the negative ways we use God to justify our means. I don't think God wants me to go out with you right now. Says the middle schooler who had a revelation in the middle of the night and is dating someone else 24 hours later. But I want to be cautious with this because I've also experienced this in real terms. As a couple I know was trying to have a baby for over seven years and a very well-intentioned woman of our church went up to them and says, God has revealed to me that you're going to be pregnant. And they never had a baby. She meant it for good, but she used the word and the authority of Christ in a way that she shouldn't have. Let us be cautious with our words. We use scripture to interpret scripture. We use scripture to interpret our experience. We use scripture to inform our decisions. May we be a people who are not flippant with the authority of God's word. May we not be a people who wield God's word just to justify our actions. For when we do, we're back at Babel, bringing God down to us and trying to rise ourselves to the authority of God. He has given us his word. He has revealed his plan for our salvation in Christ. Let us rest assured in the gospel. Paul was given apostolic authority to proclaim the gospel. Now let's look at Paul's apostolic message. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Semantic siation. This is what Paul says over and over. And I hope if you've heard it, I've said the gospel over and over and over. And what does it mean? It is the good news that Jesus is alive. And then we come to our passage. And Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, of course he isn't ashamed. He's an apostle. That's what, that's what we've just established. He's been set apart by God to preach the gospel. How could anyone be ashamed of the gospel that holds that office? But I ask you, have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? And you might quickly respond, but you just said, I'm not an apostle. But then I look at my own life, and I've become really good at God talk. I know when to talk about God, when it impresses people. 
the times I should talk about God, but I've also gotten really good at not talking about God when I should. I'm not someone that likes a lot of change. Four out of five days a week, I can eat the exact same thing for lunch. I become stressed when I go to Netflix and I try to find a new show. All I want to do is watch West Wing again. I don't want to watch something new. You might have a great advice for me on what I should watch. I really just want to watch West Wing again. And the same thing happens in the gospel when I have to proclaim the gospel to people outside this church. I really don't want to do anything different. I really just want to speak about God here on Sunday mornings or at youth group on Wednesday night or men's Bible study. Or maybe I might actually take someone out to lunch and talk about the gospel outside of these walls. And I found myself doing this. I coached my son's basketball team. And it took everything in me just to pray for the kids at the end of the practice. And I'm a minister of the gospel. But then we have to look at why Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. And we finish verse 16 and go into 17. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for all who believe. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This can also be translated from faith. From first to last, just as written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God. That's why Paul's not ashamed. He's not not ashamed because he's an apostle. He's not ashamed because in the gospel, God is at work. When he preaches the gospel, God's power is on display. When he preaches the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed in the risen Jesus Christ. When he preaches the gospel, God is working, not Paul. And not only is God using and aiding those who proclaim the gospel, but God is actually changing the hearts of its hearers. This means that sinners can actually be changed. And that's good news for us. This means that the Holy Spirit actually convicts us of sin and makes us more like Jesus. It does not just make salvation possible, but in the power of God, it makes it effectual. That's why we can have assurance, because when the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit changes us and can assure us Jesus is alive. Later on in Romans 3, 21 through 36, I, I was going to read this, but I don't have time now. I knew I wasn't going to have time. Right in Romans 3, 21 through 36 is a definition of the gospel. And what that de definition is, 
tells us and what Paul tells us in all of his letters is that the gospel is the same from Adam to Christ to the end of the age. The gospel is good news that Jesus went to the cross, displaying the power of God to overcome our sin for us. And this is what grace is, because we could not do it ourselves, no matter how hard we try. Yet God did not just merely pardon our sin, because in doing so, he would actually be unjust. If someone does something bad and someone says, oh, just forget about it, we'll sweep it under the rug, that is not justice. And so our sin must be dealt with. And that's why Christ went to the cross. He bore our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We know that God has chosen us because our hearts have been changed. We know that God is at work in us because we are actually able to turn from our sin, even though it's hard. He gives us strength and encouragement. The gospel is not a message of plausible words of wisdom. It is the power of God. It is the cross And guess what? It actually works because God is alive and well. And we are called to this gospel because Jesus humbled himself. And now we are counted guiltless because he was counted guilty. We have been redeemed from our sins. The same gospel that was preached from the beginning to end is the same gospel. Jesus is our redeemer. And the gospel brings about us obedience. Faith must be joined with obedience. This is why Paul quotes Habakkuk 2. The righteous shall shall live by faith. This is the application of of Paul's apostolic authority. How does faith work out? Well, in Habakkuk 2, it actually might be pretty hard because God was getting ready to judge his people by Gentiles. And they were supposed to live by faith. How are they supposed to do that? Because God had promised them that even though you were about to be judged by Gentiles, I will vindicate you because I am faithful. And so living by faith means walking in faithfulness and believing in God's promises. Walking in faith means that when it's really hard to see where God is faithful, we run to his word. We run to his people. Because God actually gives us grace in hearing the gospel. Because what happens during the gospel, when the gospel is preached? God is at work. And he calls us to righteousness.
This is to what we are called to live faithfully, believing in God's covenant promises through God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit, the Holy Trinity. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. So I ask you again, are you ashamed of the gospel? You have been called by God, the triune God. You've been given his power. He, he has given you his power. And then the problem is, is I still can't do it. And that's the message of the gospel. You're right. You can't do it. But the one who can resides inside of you. And he's at work. And by the power of the gospel, he is renewing us in the image of his son. And you know, the application I usually hear of this is, you know, at the coffee maker at work, you, you, you shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. And that's absolutely true. Don't hear, again, what I'm not saying. Share the person with the gospel. Share with the person at the coffee maker the gospel. They need it. But I also look at my own life, and so often I'm ashamed to say, I'm ashamed to share the gospel with my own children. It's really hard for me to pray with my wife when I know she needs prayer because I'm ashamed. Because I actually don't believe that God will be at work. I often don't lead my children in the simple things of reading scripture with them, praying with them, singing songs with them. It's the gospel. God will change my children. I can't. I've tried. It must take an act of God to change the hearts of our children. It must take an act of God to change the hearts of your spouse. However you want them to change, God has a plan for them rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ to make them look like Jesus. How can we strengthen one another? How can we as a church encourage each other to not be ashamed of the gospel in our own homes? Because I promise if you're ashamed of the gospel at your home, it's going to be a whole lot harder at work. It's going to be a whole lot harder at the Kroger. When we teach the gospel and wait for it, wait for it. When we teach the gospel, we are participating in an eschatological event where the Spirit is at work in the hearts of sinners. Praise be to God, because I haven't changed a sinner yet. If you need resources in helping lead your family in reading the gospel, talk to me, talk to an elder, talk to Miss Kimberly. We should not be ashamed of the gospel. Because God is at work. Believe in the gospel. Teach the gospel. It is the grace of God for those of faith. Amen.